The older I get, uh, the more grateful I am for those little segments at the beginning of a TV series that go the story so far, uh, because uh, my memory is lapsing, I think, as I go on. So in the selfish hope that I'm not alone in that and that that might be helpful for you too, we're going to start this morning with a little story so far. Yesterday in the Bible readings, we uh, looked at John 16. And we were brought face to face with Jesus' clear teaching and clear expectation that the Holy Spirit would be crucial in and integral to every Christian life. To the extent that Jesus says to frightened, grieving, uncertain disciples, it's for your good that I'm going away. Because unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. And we looked at how the work of the Spirit in this new stage was so closely related to the life and death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. The Holy Spirit, Jesus wanted his disciples to know, would be at work in their lives to take them by the hand and lead them into all the truth there is. And the Holy Spirit would be at work in the world, pressing home the claims of Christ in the courtroom of culture. Now today and tomorrow, we're going to look at those two aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit. Today, as we study Romans chapter 8 together, we're going to think about the work of the Holy Spirit in individual lives. And tomorrow, we're going to think about the work of the Spirit in the whole of creation. So let's read together Romans chapter 8. We're going to read the whole chapter. So I invite you prayerfully to sit under God's word. We're doing this because it's important to do it. And we're doing this because I want what I pick up later to be understood by us in the context of this block of teaching. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of human flesh, sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, 
are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption into sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager anticipation, expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that's seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Say amen with me. Therefore, Therefore, shouts Paul, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I live in a house of rugby fanatics. Now, I know that for some of you, that sounds like heaven. Uh, A house where, if at all humanly possible, even when your wife or mother makes it crystal clear that she wishes it was not so, a house where, if at all humanly possible, everything stops for rugby. Everything stops for rugby. That might sound like heaven to you. For me, it's quite the opposite. But sometimes... Sometimes, because I love them, I sit, if they're watching an Ulster match or an Ireland match on TV, and I watch it with them. And occasionally, occasionally when someone scores a try, uh, I even know the right word, even when someone uh, scores a try, I find myself making a little shout, yay, Ulster, Ireland. I don't mean it. I'm sorry. I don't mean it. Don't actually care who wins. But in the context, it feels like the right thing to do. So I make my little pretend cry. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This, brothers and sisters, is not a pretend cry from Paul. He's not just saying this because he thinks it's the right thing to do or because others around him are saying similar things. This is a shout of joy and wonder and exultation from his heart of hearts. In Romans 7, Paul has been teaching about life in Christ and the place of the law. 
verse 6 in chapter 7, is a great summary where he says, but now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And then he shouts in verse 25 of chapter 7, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. In that context, as he metaphorically stands at the foot of a cross which once held Jesus and is now empty, Paul shouts, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul has been wonderfully and starkly honest in Romans 7. He's been wonderfully and starkly honest about God's action throughout history and about the significance of the cross. And he's been wonderfully and starkly honest about the fact that he struggles. Verse 15, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Paul sees the reality of the cross and understands it. And also feels the reality of his sin. One of the ways in which the Holy Spirit works in the lives of believers is to make us aware of our sin. Now hear this. It's not in a general worm theology way. Not so that we feel generally bad about ourselves. That's not the Spirit. But the Spirit clearly, specifically, gently, strongly shows us areas in our lives which are not completely surrendered to Jesus, habits or ways of life which don't give glory to God. In the context of a loving relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Paul knows and feels the reality of sin. And... And he knows and feels the reality of the cross. Because another work of the Spirit in the lives of Christians is to consistently, always point us to Jesus and point us to the cross. He knows, he understands, and has experienced the truth that God has not abandoned human beings in our sinfulness And the rest of Romans 8, you've just heard it. The rest of Romans 8 flows from that cry of wonder at the foot of the cross. The rest of Romans 8, all that Paul's about to teach about life in the Spirit, flows from a cross-centered, on-his-knees cry of wonder and praise. I suspect that many of you in this tent are like me, great examples of a long built in Protestant work ethic. We are a hard working, fist clenched, teeth gritted driven 
people. Now, there are good bits to that. But one danger is that although we know that through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death, though we know that, we carry with us a weight deep within us of fist-clenched, teeth-gritted, trying to be good enough. What would our lives look like if we lived not with a spirit of dogged determination to be better, but out of a joyful, deep experience of thankfulness to God for the life that we've received at the foot of the cross. Do you hear this? It's here in this chapter. I think it's something that the Spirit is drawing out this morning. What would it be if at the foot of the cross we left that drivenness that I've got to be better sense and rose to live with grateful, thankful hearts? What would that look like? Well, it might look like joy as we rejoice in the reality of what God the Father has done for us. It might look like love. Love which Paul reminds us in Romans 5 has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. It might look like patience and peace as we rest in and work and live from trust in the God who's at work in the world and in us. It will look like kindness and goodness, and faithfulness, and self-control, and against these things there is no law. We're so familiar with the cross. What would our eyes look like if we allowed the Holy Spirit to bring home to us the wonder, the astounding wonder of what Jesus has done on the cross? so that now there's no condemnation. What would our eyes look like if we lived our lives out of a hymn of thankfulness to God? Horatius Bonner's ancient hymn puts it well. Would you pray it with me? Let's pray. Fill thou my life, O Lord my God, in every part with praise that my whole being may proclaim thy being and thy ways. Praise in the common things of life, its goings out and in. Praise in each duty and its deed, however small and mean. Fill every part of me with praise. Let all my being speak of thee. And of thy love, O Lord, poor though I be and weak, so shall no part of day or night from sacredness be free, but all my life in every step be fellowship with thee. Amen. Everything flows from that hymn of praise. And Paul now goes on to teach 
about what life according to the flesh, which is Paul's shorthand for everything that runs counter to God and a life lived in rebellion with to God, what life in the flesh looks like in contrast to life in the spirit. And he describes it, verse five, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds flesh on what, set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Paul's really clear on what we learned yesterday or relearned yesterday, that the Holy Spirit lives in the life of every believer. Now, we know that there's a difference between someone coming to stay in our home for a couple of nights and someone coming to live permanently with us. When we've got visitors for a couple of nights, well, we put on a good face. Uh, we make sure the house is tidy and stays tidy. Uh, we change for a couple of days to accommodate them. And then when they go, we all go back to normal. When someone comes to live with us permanently, a new normal needs to develop. We saw yesterday that because of Jesus, that the Spirit now comes to dwell in the life of every believer. The Old Testament pattern of the Spirit coming like an occasional visitor for particular tasks and particular times is finished. The Spirit now comes to dwell as a permanent resident in the life of every believer. And if that's true, then a new normal should be developing in the lives of every Christian. If the Holy Spirit inhabits the life of the believer, we should see evidence of that. We should expect to see changes. Now, we in the church, how do we cope with change, guys? But Dave said it on Saturday night. Are we the same as we were this time last year? Because if the Spirit's dwelling in our lives, we shouldn't be. Are we more kind? Are we more patient? Are we more self-controlled? Friend of mine has a little wooden plaque that she put, has put on the mirror in her hallway. And this is what it says. You might have seen it. It says, mirror, mirror on the wall. You've become your mother after all. <laughs> Rowan Williams, the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote this. The sign of the Spirit is the existence of Christ-likeness. 
being Christ's child in the world. The sign of the Spirit is the existence of Christ-likeness, being Christ's child in the world. Paul, writing to Christians in Philippi, who he knows and who he loves, says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a wicked and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars as you hold firmly to the word of life. This society is crying out for Christians who, as God works in them through the power of his spirit, are blameless and pure, who shine in the bank or the shop or at the street corner, or as they chat as they're with their friends and neighbors over the fence, who shine like stars as we hold out the word of life. So what, what does that pattern of life look like? And Paul gets specific as the chapter unfolds. Pick it up at verse uh, 12. In Romans 8, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul's teaching here, something that he picks up again and again, and it's picked up throughout the New Testament epistles. Here he is from in Galatians 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. The Spirit enables a daily pattern of dying and rising. One of the things that Neil, my husband, noticed when we started going out and he came to our family home for meals was that my mum and dad uh, at mealtimes would always try to make sure that the other person got the bigger piece of meat or the piece of pie that wasn't burnt. That sounds awful about my mum's cooking, doesn't it? She's a great cook. They didn't even notice that they were doing it. It was just their habit to put the other person first. Christians are invited into a way of life, a pattern of life by the Spirit, in which self is laid aside day by day. Jesus gave us the image of taking up our cross. John V. Taylor in The Go-Between God, his, his wonderful book on the Spirit, emphasizes that an aspect of the Spirit's creative activity is his continuous substitution of self-sacrifice on behalf of another for the natural drive of self-interest and dominance. Boy, is he right. Our natural desire, our natural drive is for self-interest and for dominance. And God, by his Holy Spirit, speaks and says, will you allow that self to be set aside? 
Will you die to that self that you might rise in the power of the Spirit to new life in Christ? Spirit enables a pattern of day-to-day, moment-by-moment, because if you're like me, it's moment-by-moment, dying to sin and rising to new life in Christ. What does this life look like? Read with me from verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. The Holy Spirit assures Christians that we are children of God. Paul begins with the fact, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And his argument in these verses is absolutely clear. The Spirit dwells in the life of every Christian. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That is the identity of God's people. And we do not follow and serve God. Do you see the consistency with his hymn of prayers at the beginning? We don't follow and serve God out of a spirit of fear or as slaves motivated by fear. We serve and follow God as adopted children who live out of a close, loving relationship with their parent and who even find themselves as heirs to the inheritance the Father has for them. The Spirit assures us that we're children of God. And one of the diseases that is rampant, rampant among Christians is amnesia. We forget few years ago now, I had a journey. I was over in London uh, with two colleagues and friends doing a media course. And uh, we flew into to Luton, got the train in. When the end of the day came, uh, it had been torrential rain all day. And when we got to King's Cross, the, the tunnel uh, which the train should have gone through was blocked because it was flooded. And we had to run through the rain uh, over to the taxi stand at the other part uh, of the station. But we weren't fast runners. You'd never guess that looking. Uh, But we weren't fast runners and others had run faster. So the queue uh, for the the, uh, taxis to the airport ran in a sort of semicircle. Started over here, ran right the way around the taxi rank so that we were actually standing quite close to what was the beginning of the queue, but we were at the end. We were chatting and the woman who was at the front of the queue heard us talking about needing to get to the airport because we were running out of time and she said, sure, come in my taxi, I'm going too. We jumped in to great uh, relief and then to our horror realized that she was the worse for wear. Uh, She had obviously had a day uh, drinking a fair bit and uh, she was now heading back uh, to the airport to go home. We had an interesting taxi journey. And at one point, uh, she settled back into the the, the seat and she looked at the three of us, my two uh, colleagues and friends who were here and me here, and she looked at them and said, now let's play a game. 
And uh, I felt bad, I can only guess uh, what the others felt. Uh, she said, let's play a game. We're going to play, let's guess what you do for a living. And uh, she, uh, she looked at my colleagues and uh, she said, you both look very clever. She said, are you lecturers? And they said, no. What she said next shamed us because, uh, well, I know for me, all I was thinking about was, how are we going to get away from this woman? How actually uh, might we get her out of the taxi uh, so that we could get there in a little bit of ease? She looked at us and she said, you've been very kind to me. She said, are you teachers? Uh, and uh, uh, we said no. And then a look of horror, horror, <laughs> crossed her face. And she said, you're Christians. And there in a taxi, I was reminded that I'm a child of God. That's my identity. And we forget so soon. And God, God who knows us, knows we forget so soon. So what does he enable and send his spirit to do? The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The spirit bringing that objective truth home to our hearts because we forget so soon. We can forget who we are. And maybe as you listen, you know that's the Spirit's nudge to you. You've just forgotten. But there are other dangers too. I think that sometimes, sometimes we hear this truth and we know it and we even experience it and remember it, but we cheapen this truth by receiving it and knowing it and stopping there. Holding on to the truth that those who belong to God are the children of God, but holding on to it like a comfort blanket. I'm God's. You might be too if I like you and think you're sound. But we hold on to it as selfish, introverted, inward-looking truth. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to assure God's people of God's love, not that they might close the doors, put on the TV or the fire, whatever your um, uh, withdrawal from the world looks like, and hold the love of God to ourselves like a comfort blanket. The Holy Spirit assures God's people of God's love that they might rely on that love out in the world. He assures us of his love that we might live in that love and share that love in the world. John gets that. Listen to 1 John uh, chapter 4, 13 uh, to um, 16, uh, the beginning of 16. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit 
And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Now listen to what he says. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. This isn't a cozy, safe assurance, a comfortable doctrine of God's love for us and ours. This is edge of the cliff, hanging on for dear life, relying on the love of God teaching. We rely on the love of God because that's what holds us when we're miles beyond our own resources. We rely on the love of God for the whole world when we look at the world and think, really? God. We rely on the love of God when we look at our own lives and wonder, really, could you still love me? We rely on the love of God as God sends us out again and again and again. Do you remember Rowan Williams' comment? The sign of the existence of the Spirit of the Spirit is the existence of Christ-likeness, being Christ's child. That's the assurance piece. But where? In the world. In the world that needs to know Jesus. Read on with me. Romans chapter 8. We'll keep going at 18. I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation's been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies." Now, if you've been listening, you'll have seen the apparent contrast that we need to pick up between Romans 8, 14 and 15 and Romans 8, 23. In 14 and 15, Paul says that we are adopted. Dundee. And yet, in 23, a few verses later, he writes about waiting eagerly for our adoption to sonship. It's a now and not yet. It's an apparent contradiction. But my guess is that we understand that. I think that experientially we get this. Those who are Christians know that they are sons and daughters of God and also long, yearn to know the fullness of what that means. And Paul uses other images to point to that tension between the now and the not yet. Earlier in verse 23, he writes that we have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits which are really good in themselves. But even more than that, they're a pointer, a sign of the harvest that is to come. It's the Spirit of God who enables the people of God to live in and acknowledge the reality of the now and the not yet. It's the Spirit of God who enables the people of God to engage with the reality of the now in all its brokenness and beauty. 
and to speak with integrity about the hope that we have in Christ. The director of an inner city mission was asked how he kept going for 30 years against all odds and among the city's poorest of the poor. And he replied, how on earth? Because I know who'll finally win the war. God is not forever mocked. There's a kingdom being prepared there for those who've had next to nothing here on earth. And I'm eager to show them what that looks like. The night before the civil rights activist Martin Luther King was assassinated, he preached to Memphis bin men. You might know part of what he said, but here it is. It's all right to talk about long robes over yonder in all its symbolism, but ultimately people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey, but God has commanded us to talk about the slums here and his children who can't eat three square meals a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but one day God's preacher must talk about the new New York, the new Atlanta, and the new Memphis. I don't know how you feel when you look around you at the culture of this generation. I do know this, that God will not allow us because he loves the world and he loves us too much. He will not allow us to look at the world and shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's nothing to do with the Christian gospel. God's people rooted and grounded in what Jesus has done must speak and must live the reality of the possibility of a new Coleraine or a new Port Stewart or a new Belfast. We rely on the love of God and will not turn our back or distance ourselves from the groaning, the groaning of injustice, the groaning of abuse, the groaning of global warning. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, the glory of God begins to be seen in the life of God's people as we engage and as we open our lives to his spirit. What then? What then, says Paul, shall we say in response to these things? I want to finish with two stories about gifts. The first was the gift of a book. My grandfather spent most of his adult life in Nigeria. He served the church there and translated the Bible into the Igedi language. Around the time of his death, a dear friend wrote a little book about my granda's life. And I have a few copies of that book. About a year ago, a kind woman sent me a copy of the booklet, which she had found on her bookshelves and which she kindly thought I would like. She'd bothered to think about me. And rather than turfing the book and the recycling, she'd posted it and sent it to me. And I... Well, the truth is I appreciate her kindness very much and received the gift, but I don't think I even opened it because I knew what was in it. And I just put it on the bookshelf beside my other copies. Second gift was a vase. My father and mother also served in Nigeria. 
They were in a rural area, part of the region where the Biafran War uh, was being waged at that time. And in the days long before social media and even TV, my mum tells of seeing planes uh, going over their area sent from the British Embassy uh, trailing big banners that were telling British citizens that they needed to leave the area because it was getting dangerous. My dad stayed uh, because he promised to serve for a particular length of time. But my mum brought me at four and my then two-year-old brother uh, home to Belfast. One morning, a present arrived for mum from dad. It must have been their anniversary. Uh, And uh, she opened it and it was a delicate white vase. I can only guess the effort that dad must have gone to to get that vase to mum. And boy, did she appreciate it. She put it uh, on the mantelpiece in the front room of the little two-down, up-two-down house that we were living in. And there it sat. And not only were my brother and I not allowed to touch it, my brother and I weren't even allowed into the room by ourselves where the vase was. A beautiful gift, but separated, too good for everyday life. The book that sat unopened because I knew what was in it. And the vase, the vase that was too good for everyday life. What then will we say in response to these things? God is here. Isn't it phenomenal that we can say that? God is here here in the power of his spirit. Where has the Holy Spirit nudged you this morning? Will you just take a moment? Where has the Holy Spirit nudged you this morning? Let's pray. God is here. God's spirit is with us. We lay our lives before you, living God. Would you show us, would you remind us of the truth that your spirit wants to take us by the hand and lead us into this morning? And in the silence, would you begin to respond to what God's saying to you? Amen. What then shall we say in response to these things? Fine, but I know this already. Wow, that's amazing, but it's too much for my everyday life. Or will we with open hands receive and just walk into the life that God by his spirit has made possible? What then will we say in response to these things? Shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. God is at work in the power of his spirit and mission in God's spirit will be through transformed lives who in the power of that transforming spirit find perhaps to their surprise that they've become like their father after all. Whether it knows it or not, whether it welcomes or acknowledges it or not, all creation is groaning, crying out for Christians who will live their lives like that.
Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Please don't sideline or say later to the voice of the Spirit. Stay sitting in your seat even as folks go for coffee if you need to take time with God. If you want someone to pray with you, well, as I said yesterday, even me, a coffee lover, go to prayer first. The tent uh, is here uh, to whatever side this is. Walk that way. And uh, the prayer tent is there and folks will pray with you. What then are you saying in response to these things? Amen.